0: Good morning, it's 830 on Thursday, November 14th. I'm Karen Brown and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A longtime colleague remembers the service of the late Mississippi House Speaker Billy McCoy. Also the alarming trend of trying youth offenders as adults in Mississippi. And environmental advocates are talking about a Gulf Coast version of the Green New Deal. Plus, novelist Margaret Wilkerson Sexton is in our book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. longtime House Democrat is remembering the public service career of former Mississippi House Speaker Billy McCoy, who died Tuesday. Representative Steve Holland of Plantersville says his fellow Democrat was instrumental in passing the state's current education funding formula, but will be most remembered for legislation creating a four-lane state highway system. Holland spoke with MPB's Ezra Wall.
1: Billy was just this not on a log kind of guy. He, he was He was witty. He was intelligent. He had very broad vision. He was my dear friend. We sat together for 28 years. We rode in that 1980 model Cutlass Supreme that had 400,000 miles on it all across the state of Mississippi, stopping at country stores, reveling with citizens, average, everyday citizens in their hometowns, learning what their thoughts and their needs and and their ideas and opinions were about the government and staying close to uh, the roots of most Mississippians. And it's a legacy that I think will be long unsurpassed and a personal experience of such depth and proportion that... uh, I will never, ever, as long as I draw breath, forget
2: For most of the time that you two were in the legislature together, you were the gentleman from Pl- Plannersville, and he was the gentleman from Ryanzie. How Talk about that relationship and, and how that well, shaped it, you as a it, legislator. It
1: was, it was very unique. Uh, uh, I, I'll never forget when I got elected, one of the first people that called me was Billy McCoy. And, and the conversation was very straightforward and almost abrupt. He said, you and I are cut from the same bolt of cloth. We're going to be buddies. You're going to sit beside me. And, and and people soon got to know us almost as a team. It was Billy and Steve. So he really put me on a good start, and I owe a lot of whatever it was that I was in 36 years to the tutelage and mentorship of Billy McCoy.
2: He was uh, instrumental in a couple of, I mean, so many things. But uh, what do you think will be his sort of the lasting legacy of Billy well, McCoy? Well, I
1: think the lasting legacy will be the four-lane highway program simply because its timing was so critical. But Billy McCoy was the carpenter who put the highway advancement house together and sold it literally in public hearings all across the state and it was just one of the most brilliant. It's probably maybe first or second in economic modern economic development history in the state. as the best thing the legislature ever did. But the highways opened up our state to business, to the world, and Billy McCoy was the builder. He was not necessarily the architect, even though he had a lot to do with it, but he's the one that sold the program, and he's the one that handled it, and he's the one that knew every mile of payment and when it would be done. And I think that will be his biggest legacy. We wouldn't have Nissan. We wouldn't have Toyota. We wouldn't have uh, Yokohama. We wouldn't have uh, Continental Tire. So many projects that have come in the last 30-plus years from that 87 highway program just wouldn't be here if it hadn't have been here, because people aren't going to drive on two-lane roads and build a blue chip industry like that so I think that's Billy's legacy so
2: his time in the legislature came to an end uh, eight or so years ago your time in the legislature is coming uh, to an end here soon what what do you think the current crop of legislators or even the next generation of legislators can look back uh, on and learn about the time of, uh, of Steve Holland and Billy McCoy
1: I think that time will say that we were warriors And we were warriors not for ourselves, uh, but for our constituency, and, yea, for the whole of Mississippi. Bill McCorr was not regional in nature, and neither was I in all of my service. Uh, We both believed uh, believed in ideas, simple or noble ideas. We thought every person in this state ought to have a right in this. He chaired education in Ways and Means, and as I chaired agriculture and public health all those years uh, and both sat on appropriations, we were able to bring diverse groups together and to give everybody the opportunity to sit at the table and have a part in public policy in this state. So I think our legacy will be transparency, number one. Number two, accessibility. And number three, our marketability to the process itself because of of, of dedication, preparation, and inspiration toward the people, and Billy more so than me, because he rose to the top leadership position as Speaker, and 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 his legacy will be that of of extraordinary progress in a state that now is not known so much for its progress.
2: Representative Steve Holland, the gentleman from Plannersville, I appreciate you taking time to reflect on the life and service of your friend. Thank you, Ezra. Appreciate it.
0: Services for Billy McCoy will be Friday afternoon at 2 at Gaston Baptist Church near Boonville. He was 77. Coming up, the alarming trend of trying youth offenders as adults in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Have you been in this situation? You're listening to a great story on Think Radio in your vehicle, but now it's time to go inside. You want to keep listening, but you're ready to move on. What can you do? Pull up the MPB Public Media app on your phone while you're in the car. You can continue listening to that great MPB local show and not miss a moment. Search for the MPB Public Media app in your app store. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A new report out today shows nearly 5,000 children in Mississippi have been charged as adults in the last 25 years. Of those, three out of four are African American. It's part of an online story available today from the public radio show Reveal. Reporter Co. Bragg talks about her findings with MPB's Ezra Wall.
3: In Mississippi and in over two dozen states, kids can be in the adult system automatically. So as soon as they're arrested for certain crimes, Um, they're automatically put into the adult system, which means an array of things. It means going to adult jail sometimes rather than if they are in the youth court system, which has all different types of protections, um, including that a journalist like me would never know those kids' names. You've been
2: following in particular, among all of your other research, you've been following a, a specific case here of a young person who is in adult court, wound up in adult court after you know, it's, stealing is, is being accused of stealing is no minor thing, but really what amounts to a, a fairly minor theft accusation.
3: This case that I follow, um, is of a young man named Isaiah and he is charged with armed robbery. Um, and in the commission of that robbery, he steals a cell phone and, um, you know, this kid admits that it wasn't a smart thing to do, but it's it's this question of, like, these systems that adults create to punish children and to punish children as adults when they are not adults in any other stretch of the imagination, um, any other aspects of our law even, right? Like, Isaiah was 13, um, and that's the minimum age to be in the adult system in Mississippi. And so it's really looking at, okay, what do we say about ourselves about society if this is if this is the system that a 13 year old can face when if he was in the youth court system or received some sort of counseling outside of it and not just him but many kids that um go through systems like this um where there's like a holistic treatment rather than the adult system which for adults most would agree does not result in uh, any type of healing or transformation. Part of the law that allows
2: a 13-year-old to potentially be charged as an adult in Mississippi, has that always been
3: the law in Mississippi? When did that become the law? Yeah, so part of my research that I've really enjoyed doing as a history major, I majored in history undergrad, was that um, a lot of this work took me to the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, where I found that these original jurisdiction laws whereby kids are charged as adults um, at 13, originated in the 40s, and originated at a time where there were a lot of laws on the books and actively created to disenfranchise African Americans. And these original jurisdiction laws, I found in my reporting, were originally designed to target black children.
2: Beside the fact that these laws came about during the uh, Jim Crow era, what else tells you that their purpose and
3: their design was racist in nature. There was a time when lawmakers first set the age where kids could be criminally prosecuted at 14. And a couple years later, um, lawmakers want to take that part of the law and get rid of it, meaning that there would be no age limit, that any child, 9, 10, 11, could be charged as an adult. And the governor at the time, um, Paul Johnson Sr., said no. And he said no because that same year, had already approved what is called a quote Negro reformatory school at Oakley State Farm. And so what he was saying in this like very small line um, that makes up his veto was that there's no reason to prosecute younger children because he's already set aside a place to specifically send black children who've been um, charged with crimes. And so it's a very small and nuanced thing. It's very easy to overlook. But what it is saying is that who they would have held to be criminal in the 40s were black children.
2: The reporting that you've done is available in a couple of formats uh, starting today. There's a print version called Bound by Statute. Where where can
3: people find that? Sure. So people can find that at revealnews.org. Um, and we've partnered with some great Southern publications to also get that out so it can be found um, through Mississippi Today, as well as Scalawag Magazine. Um, and this will also air on MPB um, this Sunday at 1 PM, um, as a full hour on the radio. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of places to engage with this work and I encourage it. The audio part of that is part of our uh, documentary uh, program
2: reveal and it's called development arrested. And it is, as you said, airs uh, at 1 PM this Sunday on MPB think radio. Co Bragg is the reporter, uh, behind, uh, this excellent piece of work. Co, thank you for sharing your results with us.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, environmental advocates are talking about a Gulf Coast version of the Green New Deal. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. An environmental initiative is being launched that focuses on helping communities of color on the Gulf Coast. The Gulf Coast for a Green New Deal is a plan crafted by community leaders, indigenous peoples, farmers, and small business members. Gordon Jackson is the chair of the Environmental and Climate Justice Committee for the Biloxi NAACP. He tells MPB's Kobe Vance, while the Green New Deal is a good idea, it needs to be tailored to fit the needs of the Gulf South
4: this concept of the Green New Deal first loomed uh, into the picture uh, as an idea spurred by uh, New York Congressman Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. And so we uh, bought into a group of us in the South Mississippi area and and, uh, in Louisiana area uh, on the Gulf South region uh, uh, bought into it, but noticed that while the Green New Deal is basically a good idea from the top, but there needed to be more specific parts of that agenda that would fit the issues and the concerns of the people in the Gulf South region and things. Uh things like uh uh the fishing industry down here, the uh seafood industry down here and other things and things like uh 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 homes or, or communities being located uh close to uh, uh, hazardous uh, energy plants, uh, which uh, a statistic shows that about 75% of those uh, hazardous energy plants are 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 located adjacent to low-income communities and people of color communities, and so there's a lot of these concerns. And so, uh, if we're going to buy into the Green New Deal and help. Uh, make it uh, a, a success, and we, we definitely got to have our part of the agenda. In the conference, you expressed the phrase um, environmental racism. Could you elaborate on what mm-hmm. that means? You look at the statistics, even even uh, before, it, since the 1960s uh, and things, uh, there has been a lot of issues concerning with uh, environmental injustice and just straight out environmental racism. I mentioned one factor about uh, uh, 75% of the uh, hazardous energy plants being located near people of color you know also in in instances like uh recovering from hurricane katrina even though that's about 14 years ago uh there are still communities and parts of of, of cities that still have not completely recovered and most if not all of those communities are low income people of color communities uh which means that whatever money or whatever funds was uh, laid out uh to uh to uh address the issues of recovery. A lot of, a lot, very few of that. Much of that money was diverted to those type of communities and things. And uh, uh, just some, uh, ex- a lot of different examples in in all the different states of uh, of plants. Uh, just plants, just uh, you know, operating and uh, take it, maybe taking advantage or exploiting the people of color community in a lot of different situations and so we wanted to address that uh there is such a thing as uh, environmental justice uh, that we want that to be at the top of the discussion as well and what are some of the key points that the the gulf south for the green new deal is trying to hit we're trying to hit uh, all of the points that you know that i just mentioned the points that i see uh that is uh, relevant. Uh, in my area and in, in uh, South Mississippi, uh but specifically communities like East Biloxi or or the or how uh for example uh the fishing industry and how uh, the Vietnamese community is uh is, is struggling to hold on and have a part in the uh uh in the fishing industry we have a significant vietnamese community down here in the area and a lot of times they feel that they don't get their share of the opportunities uh to take advantage of the uh of the fishing market that is available to them rest of the seafood industry things of things of that nature
0: Gordon Jackson of the Biloxi NAACP with MPB's Kobe Vance. Fifty groups across five southern states have co-sponsored the initiative, and more than 100 organizations have endorsed the policy. Coming up, novelist Margaret Wilkerson Sexton is in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: I'm Robert Krulwich from Radiolab. We're told that smell triggers memories in the brain. So if you're in your car, let's try something. Roll up your windows and inhale, okay? There are some memories you cherish and others that just um, linger. But now here's a thought. How about contributing this barrel of aroma that is your car to your favorite public radio station? And you might even get a tax deduction. Thanks. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org.
0: In her debut novel, Margaret Wilkerson Sexton told the story of three generations of a black New Orleans family in World War II, the 1980s, and post-Katrina. That book, A Kind of Freedom, was met with high praise and a nomination for the National Book Award. Now, Wilkerson Sexton is out with her next book, The Revisioners. It's the story of a former slave and her neighbor in 1924, and then her descendant's relationship with her white grandmother. The themes are similar, but was that intentional? Margaret Wilkerson Sexton tells us.
5: I must like it because I almost resisted it for the revisioners because it was similar in that way. And I wanted to do something a little bit different, but it's like, that's how my brain likes to unfold family narratives. It's like, I feel like the multi-generational aspect gives it a context that it needs. And so it just helps me. I feel like it fills in many gaps and it's just been a good way for my brain to process the story that I'm trying to tell. And it's funny because the third book I'm working on right now, it's a short story collection, and it's supposed to be about these cousins and their relationship. <laughs> and um, and and then I found that I'm adding all this stuff about their parents and their grandparents. And it's like, I guess it's what my brain
0: likes to do. <laughs> the big difference between yeah. A Kind of Freedom and The Revisioners is The Revisioners focuses on women, strong women, And then women who are, I guess, marginalized. And the two stories of these two groups of women are 100 years apart. So can you give us the broad description of what the book is about?
5: So the book tells the story of Josephine, who in 1924 is a former enslaved woman and former sharecropper. And she's had a tough life. She's escaped slavery And she worked as a sharecropper, but she's flourishing now. Even though she's widowed, she has, through a stroke of luck, ended up owning a 300-acre farm, and she has healthy, strong relationships, and she has all the resources she needs. However, this is the year that a white woman moves in next door, and um, this younger white woman is not as secure as Josephine. She's lonely, and she, she tries to forge a friendship with Josephine, and Josephine is reticent at first. But finally, she acquiesces, and they start to form this cautious relationship, and then she learns that the woman is a member of the clan.
0: What is the relationship or the similarity between that and going forward 100 years?
5: So then we have Ava, many generations later, who's Josephine's great-great-great-granddaughter. And Ava is biracial, and she is strapped for cash. And she decides to move in with her white grandmother just to save some money. And her white grandmother is sick. And so it's a win-win. She'll help her with her health and the grandmother will help her save money. And at first it works out. Everything's going smoothly, but then the grandmother's behavior becomes increasingly erratic and even racist. And the storylines between Josephine and Ava begin to converge.
0: What do you want readers to take away from this book?
5: So um, the main thing is, A Kind of Freedom told the story of three generations of a New Orleans family spanning World War II to post Katrina, and the trajectory was downward. I wanted it to be. I wanted to show that despite the fact that Jim Crow was upended, we've had systems in its wake to come in to do the work for Jim Crow, systems like the war on drugs and mass incarceration. And I felt like there needed to be a dismal tone in that book for the gravity of the situation to be expressed. However, I was a little bit dissatisfied with how how dismal the tone was. And I sort of wanted this book to end on a more hopeful note. I wanted to delve into not only the intergenerational trauma that's passed down, but the the power. What are descendants of enslaved people gaining from those experiences what happened to all the wisdom and the strength that were accumulated through all the suffering of that situation, not only in slavery, but also through post reconstruction, et cetera. And so I just wanted my black readers to feel there's an endurance and the hope that was passed down that they can use during this time, which is also oppressive. And then I also wanted to, um, shed some light on the the discrepancy in voting patterns. And I'm talking about the disparity between white women and black women voters, the the history of black women's exclusion from the feminist movement, for instance. I want to shed some light on the history of that and how it's showing up today to try to, to heal it, to try to expose it so that we can figure out a way to facilitate more communion and connection between those two groups at a time when we desperately need it.
0: Margaret Wilkerson Sexton was a National Book Award nominee for her debut novel, A Kind of Freedom, and her latest novel is The Revisioners. Margaret, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's AutoCorrect. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online by visiting mpbonline.org. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow for NPR's special coverage of the House Impeachment Inquiry. And join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from
1: the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Visitors can shine a light on the power of courage at the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. Open Tuesdays through Sundays. Details at 2MississippiMuseums.com.
0: Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it.